We're continuing this morning in our series looking at the life of Paul and how Paul shared the good news. And so this morning we're, we're looking under the title of Signs and Wonders. How did Paul share the good news with the signs of the coming kingdom, with healings, with miracles and the like? And what on earth does that have to do with us today? So if you've got a Bible, um, if you could turn to page 1053, we're reading chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. So verses 1 to 12. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit? When you believed, they answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. What an amazing passage. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for the ministry of Paul. Thank you for the way you used him. Thank you for Luke's account here of what happened. I just pray as we open up what is quite a difficult topic, really, that you will give us great wisdom to apply it to our own lives in the way that you want us to. So we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. God is alive. He's working in our world. We've got one amen. If we were Pentecostals this morning, we would be shouting hallelujah at this point. Should we try it again? God is working in our world. Fantastic. That was a bit better. God is God, isn't he? God has been made known to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus who died on the cross for us. Jesus who rose again, defeating the powers of sin and death. The spirit has been poured out on the church and we await his return. While we await the return of Jesus, we live in a time of all kinds of promises that God has given us, that he won't leave us or forsake us, that the spirit will be evident at work in us, that the church will grow. However, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read the book of Acts and I read the life of Paul, and then I look at our church, I look at the churches round about, I look at the church often in the Western world, and I can't speak for those parts of the world where revival is breaking out because I've never been there. But the churches that I've got experience of, and I say, are we really like the church in the book of Acts? Are we really like what was going on in these first days of the Christian church? At times, it seems that there's almost seismic gulf between what we experience and what happened in the first decades following Pentecost. 
You know, we do see glimmers of God at work, don't we? We've heard some of them this morning. We see evidence that God is interested in our lives, that God is doing things, and sometimes God does absolutely amazing things. But sometimes I wonder if we burn like a little candle, whereas the early church was burning like a raging bonfire. So a question for us. Should we be expecting more? Should we be expecting more? Should we be anticipating that following Jesus would look more like the book of Acts than it presently does? Or is that simply the wrong question? So this morning, we're going to be looking at this theme of signs and wonders and sharing the gospel. You know, you don't need to read far into the Bible at all, do you, before you realize that God does miraculous things. God does amazing things. You look at Moses and the Exodus, you see the sea parting in front of you. Now, that has never happened to me. I'm sure it hasn't to you either. But you see all these phenomenal things, water coming out of rocks, God just doing amazing things in the desert. You then move forward to the time of Joshua when the people entered the promised land. You see rivers piling up, you know, water piling up in a heap, all kinds of amazing things. The book of Daniel, full of miracles. Go to the ministry of Jesus. The birth of Jesus is full of miracles. The ministry of Jesus is full of signs and wonders. The greatest, greatest miracle of them all is that Jesus died on the cross out of love for me and you, and that he rose again. The early church starts with miracles at the day of Pentecost, and it carries on into the ministry of Paul and Peter, and the list goes on. We see time and time again that God is a God of signs and a God of wonders. God's sovereignty is not just limited to salvation history, but it is over the laws of physics, the laws of matter, the laws of health, all these kind of things. God can alter according to his will and purposes. But then I look at us today. You know, I don't think there's anybody old enough not to have been educated since the Enlightenment in this room. You'd have to be about 350. We are all children, if you like, who've been um, sort of educated in a very rational way. We've been educated looking at proving things, the scientific method. And what that has done is over the last three or 400 years, particularly in the Western world, is it has made us at best skeptical and at worst very cynical of God breaking in to time and space. And we tend to say God doesn't do this kind of things because it's it's not provable in a scientific kind of way. And so it can be very easy to become cynical about it. In contemporary evangelicalism in this country and perhaps even more pronounced in the US, people have taken sides on this. And there are two very long words that have been used to describe people's different views. There's a, a view called a cessationist and another view called a continuationist. I'll explain them because they are very long words. A cessationist is those people who sort of would read the Bible and say, well, God did the miracles back then, but this all stopped with the death of the apostles. So when John dies in about 100 AD or somewhere around then, that something was taken away from the church and those gifts never continued. However, as I read the Bible, I don't see that's what the Bible says. I don't see there's any evidence that part of the Holy Spirit's ministry was going to be taken away. And in fact, Jesus says the opposite, doesn't he? John 14, verse 12, you will do greater things, greater things than even what Jesus has done. At the other end of the spectrum then, so you've got the cessationist one one viewpoint. On the other viewpoint is the continuationist. And this actually means that, that people believe that the signs and wonders that we see in the life of the early church continue right to this present day. 
Now, that would be my viewpoint, and you have to test all of this out according to Scripture. Don't take my word for it. Get into your Bibles. Well, this would be my viewpoint. Firstly, because I believe that's what the Scripture says. I also believe that this is what church history give evidence to. We haven't got time to do a huge tour through church history, but just three names. Irenaeus, one of the church fathers from the second century, says this. Some drive out devils. Some have foreknowledge of the future. Others heal the sick through the laying on of hands. 150 years or so after the book of Acts. Fast forward. Have to get Augustine of Hippo in here somewhere. Um, He tells the story of being in Milan in the 5th century. And he said while he was there, they prayed for this man who was blind. And the man got his sight back. The emperor, the emperor of Rome, was in Milan at the time trying to escape from barbarian attacks. And so he was there and he saw this great witness to the power of God and the gospel. And it really sort of increased the sense of what God was doing in that place. Going up a bit further forward to Martin Luther in the 16th century. You know, Martin Luther, in his titles of his books he wrote, was not one for ecumenical relationships. This book was called Against the Roman Papacy, an Institution of the Devil. We'll perhaps ignore that. But he said this, often, as it happened and still does, the devils have been driven out in the name of Christ, also by calling on his name and prayer, the sick have been healed. So secondly, church history gives evidence that God is still a God of signs and wonders. He always has been, and he always will be. The third thing, so scripture, church history, and the third thing for me is my own experience. You know, in my own life, I've experienced God heal me. I've also experienced the times when he hasn't healed me, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But I've experienced that. I have seen people being healed from things that have confounded people who are medics. I've also seen God work in signs and wonders in different ways. Yet there is a problem at that end of the spectrum, the continuationist, is that some people try and push it a little bit further and actually go beyond what scripture says. So I've heard people say, you know, God always wants to physically heal you in this life. There is no promise of that in scripture. Absolutely no promise of that at all. That's a future promise. That is the promise of what is to come. It says in Revelation verse 21 verse 4 that there will be a day when there are no more tears or crying or pain. But that is not this day. That is not yet. That is to come when Jesus Christ becomes all in all and we live with him forever. I've also had people say to me, the reason you've not been healed is because you've not got enough faith. What a dangerous and terrible thing to say to somebody. You've not been healed because you've not got enough faith. God heals out of his mercy and his love from time to time. In this life, there is a promise of a future reality. But we also have to live with the fact that our bodies are wearing out. They will succumb to illness. They will fall apart. You know, even Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. We don't know whether it was illness. But it's something that he prayed three times for God to take away. What did God say to him? My grace is sufficient. Physical healing is not the end game. This afternoon, um, I'm hoping to go over to Stockport and see a friend of mine. And this friend of mine, he was the best man at our wedding, but he's dying from a terminal illness. He knows Jesus intimately. Now, God may step in and do a miracle, but to date, he's just declining day after day after day. And yet in his heart, in his life, he knows the presence of God. Is that not a great sign and wonder? 
that even through the body that is falling apart, he knows the peace and the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus never promises that the Christian will be free of physical illness. We ought to be expecting that God will be at work, but it's according to his, his will and his purposes. You know, we rejoice, don't we, like we have this morning when we see evidence of God at work. Sometimes it is in those little bits of detail. Sometimes it is in bigger things. You know, we were praying for Jasper, weren't we, a few months ago? And I believe we saw God moving in an incredible way in that young baby's life. But other time, God simply says, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. So should we be expecting more? We'll keep asking that question. But let's get into this passage that we heard read a few moments ago. So Paul is in Ephesus. And there are three things going on in this passage, really. The first one is about Paul meeting these disciples. Then we find Paul in a synagogue. And then we get these two, what could be very strange verses about um, handkerchiefs and things being taken around to the sick. So we'll deal with the, the slightly easier ones first. So Paul is, is in um, Ephesus. Ephesus is this big city in modern-day Turkey. And it's a city of about 50,000 people. There's a huge temple of Artemis in this city. And as Paul arrives there, he meets some disciples. Now Luke, the writer of Acts, he doesn't tell us a lot of detail about what these disciples were like. But we suddenly realize that there's actually a question mark over them. Because Paul starts asking some probing questions. Have you received the Holy Spirit? And in the conversation that follows on from that, we find out that they hadn't. They hadn't received the Holy Spirit. They were baptized not into the name of Jesus, but they were baptized for repentance under John the Baptist. Now we can sit here and think, well, that was decades previously to the events that are now taking place. Surely they must have heard about Jesus by then. But news in the ancient world traveled slowly. Traditions, at all points in human history, sometimes last for longer than their usefulness. I came across this this week. I won't read it out, but I think it's quite good. You have to get Brexit in there somewhere, don't we? Their baptism wasn't Trinitarian. It was only baptism for repentance. And so what happens is they're then baptized as Christians. Their Holy Spirit comes on them as Paul lays his hands and they speak in tongues as prophesy. Now, much has been tried to be made of this passage to try and formulate how people become Christians, how they should be baptized, and how they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think that's what Luke is trying to do here. You know, Luke is not giving us a systematic explanation of how everybody is to become a Christian. He's just telling us some history. And he's telling us how these group of people who have ended up as disciples of John, not of Jesus, are brought into the family of God's forgiven people. It's history. And nor can we say from this passage that actually the evidence of them being filled with the Spirit is speaking in tongues. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, Therefore I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. See, it's not the signs and wonders that confirm that they're part of the body of Christ. But it's their acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord at baptism that confirms that they are filled with the Spirit. The New Testament doesn't know anything of Christians who aren't sealed by the Holy Spirit. So that's the first part of the passage. We then move on to the second bit. And we get Paul in the synagogue. 
And he preaches there for three months. I don't presume continuously, but he's there on and off for three months. And he ends up having to leave because people are becoming obstinate. They're not listening to him anymore. So he goes down the road and he goes and preaches in the lecture hall, the Gentile lecture hall instead. And then we get the final bit of this passage with these two rather strange verses where Luke tells us about extraordinary miracles. Now what the NIV does is tidy up the Greek a little bit too much. So we, we, we lose some of the, the if you like, the, the cut of this verse. Because the Greek actually reads, and miracles, not the ones having commonly occurred, performed by the hands of Paul. As if there are miracles that are to be expected in Christian ministry, and then there are ones that are a little bit extraordinary. And these are the ones that go beyond it. So what on earth is happening when these handkerchiefs and aprons are being taken around? Well, Ephesus was a very superstitious place. It wouldn't have been uncommon to find people walking around clutching little amulets or trinkets or bits of cloth or bits of rope or things like that that had been prayed over or blessed by one of the pagan priests. And so that was a sort of common practice in the city of Ephesus. People would be doing these kind of things. And in verse 12, what a lot of commentators suggest is that actually what we're seeing is people just carrying on that kind of way of behaving but seeing something different in Paul. And so they go to Paul's workshop. You wonder why they're getting aprons. It's probably because Paul is making tents. If you're here last week, um, we heard all about tent making. And they're getting bits of rags and things like this. And then God, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, is allowing these things to be used to point people to Jesus. But you see, as human beings, we like to get a passage and think, well, what does this mean for us today? The church going into the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages decided this passage was all about the the relics of saints. I don't know if you've ever been anywhere where you've seen some relics. Um, We were in Budapest in the summer, and we were in a cathedral there, and there was this withered hand in a box. And it said, this is the relic of St. Stephen. I don't know whether it was, but anyway, there was this withered hand. And what people used to do is take these bones around, or or, um, handkerchiefs or, or clothes of people, And claim miracles were then attached to these things. And it became highly destructive. At one point in the Middle Ages, I think there were eight skulls of St. Paul doing the rounds at the same time. But that's what happened. That was the kind of thing that went on. More recently, I've come across Christian groups who are then praying over handkerchiefs and sending them round. Basing it on this passage. Both, I think, actually missed the point. This is not why Luke is telling us this. It's not something to follow. Luke doesn't say this is a great practice or you should all be doing this. He simply tells us what happened. That God is a God of the extraordinary. That God will use even human weakness to draw people to himself so that people can hear the gospel and respond to him. Are you open to the God of the extraordinary? Or do you want to have God all nicely boxed in? Are you open that God may use the most unexpected things to draw people to saving faith in Jesus? It's Christmas in a few weeks, isn't it? Some sighs going round. (laughs) But it is Christmas. It always amazes me that one of the first people to encounter Jesus from some astrologers, we are forbidden in the Bible, aren't we, for looking at the stars. Yet, who does Jesus reveal himself? Or who does God reveal his Messiah to? Some people doing that. Because God is the God of the extraordinary. We can't box him in. He will draw people to himself, even using things that we would find extraordinary.
Secondly, what does this passage tell us about Paul? I don't know if you fancy buying one of these. Anyone got one of these? It looks a bit like a trouser press, but it's actually called an EM Sculpt. And what it does is you sit down on a chair and you fasten various belts and things around you and it exercises you without you having to do anything at all. (laughs) You'll know I've got one if I start to suddenly develop these huge muscles. (laughs) But it's exercise without the effort. You literally sit there without lifting a little finger. You can have whatever physique you want. Now we can read this passage and we can start thinking... Yes, I would love to see more of God's signs and wonders in my life, in the life of the church. I would love to see more people coming to saving faith in Jesus. But actually, I'd love to do it in such a way that allows me to remain comfortable, not have to change anything, and just be exactly the same as I've always been. What do we notice about Paul from this passage? didn't strike me this until I think it was late on on Friday when me and Claire were just chatting through um, what I was talking about on Sunday. But one thing we notice about Paul is his obedience to Jesus. His obedience. It is actually mind-blowing. Just look at the passage if you've got it in front of you. He lives and acts in the way that Jesus would have done and the way that we find Jesus has taught us to do. Remember the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel to go to every nation, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verses 1 to 4, what do we find Jesus doing? Baptizing people into the name of Jesus, who've actually only received baptism for repentance under John's ministry. He does exactly as Jesus had said. Verse 8, we were told to go, the, the disciples were called to go to Jerusalem, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. What does Paul do here? Well, he starts not in Jerusalem because he's in Ephesus, but he starts in the synagogue in the place with his own people, the people with the same backstory, the people who understood so much of who God was. He starts there and then moves out. He does exactly what Jesus had said. We then get to the part where he's in the synagogue and he's there been preaching for three months and it's a bit of a battle and people refuse to believe him. So again, the words of Jesus are put into practice. This time, Matthew 10, verse 14. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. What does he do? He leaves the home of the Jewish people, if you like, the synagogue, and he goes down the road to the lecture hall, and he starts discussing there about the gospel. He does at every turn exactly what Jesus had said. And he's persistent. He's there for two years, discussing suggesting, arguing with people about who Jesus is. He doesn't just sing a lot of nice songs saying, I will do everything and for you, or I will give everything to you. He actually puts it into practice. You might be thinking, well, what on earth has that got to do with signs and wonders? Well, Paul is living the kind of life that is lived out, talked about, demonstrated through obedience that means that he's available to God to use in whatever way God sees fit. Paul isn't obedient to twist God's arm. That would be absurd. But he's obedient because he loves Christ and therefore is available as a vessel to be used for the gospel. John Wesley, um, the great revival preacher of the, the 18th century, 
was once writing about the signs and wonders of the church. And it, and it is true. As you go through church history, there is a sort of tailing off as you get into the 4th and 5th century. And you don't really see a lot of the sort of evidence of the kingdom of God sort of breaking out in people's lives then for a while. And he wrote this. He says, The cause of this decline of spiritual gifts following Constantine was not as being vulgarly... I can't even say that word. Vulgarly supposed. Like Simon last week. What was it he couldn't say? I can't remember. Anyway, vulgarly supposed. We've got there. Because there was no more occasion for them. Because all the world has become Christians. This is a miserable mistake. Not a 20th part of it was then nominally Christian. The real cause was the love of many, almost of all Christians, so-called, was waxed cold. The Christians had no more of the spirit of Christ than the other heathens. You know, I've heard people relate the fact that we don't see signs and wonders to faith. You know, we don't believe enough. If only we'd believe a bit more. We'd see more people coming to faith. We'd see more evidence of the kingdom breaking out in our midst. What does Wesley say? That it's actually because our love has waxed cold. When we don't love Jesus, we won't do what he tells us. When we don't love Jesus, we'll see obedience to his ways slipping in our lives. And we'll start to go off on our own way. When we don't love Jesus, we won't love our neighbor as ourselves. We won't see any need to share him. We won't have that deep relationship with him that means that actually it's worth everything to ensure that the gospel is told about. We're not obedient to generate the signs and wonders. Like I said, that would be an absurd thing to do. It would make God into a process, not into our heavenly loving Father. But we're, we're obedient because we love Christ and we want to make him known. You see, what Jesus asked us to do is quite simply follow me. Come after me. Do the things you see me doing. We can then leave the rest up to God. A number of years ago, I think I've mentioned this before, but I was at a conference and there was a chap called Simon Ponsonby speaking. And he said something along these lines. He said, for a number of years, some people in the church have preached signs and wonders. And they've not actually seen a lot. He said what the apostles went around doing was preaching the gospel and God did the rest. God did the rest. We can get very strung up about all this stuff. But God is sovereign. He will know when he wants to heal, when he wants to demonstrate something with a sign. All we have to do is be faithful. Be obedient. Be those people who take Jesus at his word. Has our love for Jesus waxed cold? I love Wesley's language. Has it waxed cold? Are we like a candle that used to be burning bright, but we've now got a puddle of wax around us? And it's set. And we've got stuck. Or are we loving Christ with the kind of passion that we see Paul did? Are we obedient people? Will we take the call that we're looking at as a church in a few weeks about praying unceasingly as we get into our new rhythm of prayer? Or have we waxed cold? So, should we be expecting more? Sorry, I missed that one. Blessed are they that fear, that hear the word of God and keep it. Just a reminder from Jesus there. Should we be expecting more? My answer would be, if we're obedient to Jesus, if we're doing what Jesus says, if we're preaching the gospel, absolutely. Absolutely. More of the greatest miracle of all. What's the greatest miracle of all? People finding saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The rest is there simply in the Gospels to support that greatest miracle.
As God wills it, it's not ours to command or to demand the healings and the deliverance. We can leave all that to God. But if we're obedient to him, God will be evidently at work amongst us. See, signs and wonders, they're never the end game, are they? As you read the accounts of the early church, the church is never told to go away and become a spectacular people, but a faithful people, an obedient people, people who preach the gospel, people who share Jesus with our friends and our neighbors, people whose lifestyle reflects the God that we're trusting. So what practically can we do with this? There are just three things that I've thought of in my own life that I feel I need to do. Now, one of them I'm not putting on the screen, so there's four if you like. The first one is to walk in obedience with Christ. That is the primary thing. Do as he does. But just some other things. Praying boldly for the struggling and the sick. It seems to me that lots of people came to Jesus with outward issues in life. And Jesus would sometimes say to people, what is it you want me to do for you? If people come to me and say, well, do you pray for healing? My answer is always yes. Absolutely. I know all the caveats that God won't always heal, but that doesn't stop me coming boldly, knowing that God can heal and at times does heal. What about those people, though, that are outside of the church? Jesus didn't spend his time praying for people often in the temple. He was out in the villages. He was out with people, people who were suffering. If you know somebody in your workplace, in your family, amongst your friends who is suffering, would you take that risky step of just saying, I'm going to pray for you in my prayers? It's not that risky, really, is it? We can probably most get away with saying that without people then thinking we're really bizarre. If you're even bolder still, you may want to say, can I just pray for you now? That's a big step. Somebody might say no. Goodness me. We could say that. But just offering to pray for people, doing those things that Jesus did. Do we pray to the God of the extraordinary for the extraordinary? You know, God does lots of extraordinary things through the scriptures. He does lots of ordinary things as well, but he does lots of extraordinary things. It says in James 4 verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. You know, there are people who are close to me who aren't Christians, people in my family who aren't Christians. I can't actually remember until I've been preparing this this week. The last time I prayed that God would do something extraordinary in their lives. I prayed that God would give me the words to say and all those kind of things. But I've not prayed for a Damascus Road experience or those kind of things for people. When do we actually pray that the God of the extraordinary will do the extraordinary so that people will come to know him? Thirdly, are we really committed to praying for the greatest miracle of all? That people will become followers of Jesus Christ. That people will know freedom from sin. That people will come and know that they are part of the new creation. That people too can have that final hope that there will be no more tears and no more crying and no more pain. Don't just pray for number one without praying for number three. There's not a lot to be gained by somebody having some kind of physical relief in this world whilst losing their soul in the next. So can I just leave those with you? I'm just going to spend a couple of moments just in the quietness, I'm going to ask those who are serving on communion to come forward just in a moment. And let's just hold this moment and say, Lord, what is it you're calling me to do? What is it you are calling me specifically to do from this passage today? So just a moment of quiet. 
and then I'll lead us in prayer, and then we'll go into a time of communion. Lord, it is a real challenge at times living in this gap between you having ascended into heaven and returning again. Lord, we long for the day when all the problems, all the pressures, all the illness of this world will be fully gone and we will be made new. But until that day, Lord, I just pray that we will be faithful to your word. That we will do as your word tells us, that we will share Jesus, that we will pray boldly that the ministry that Jesus instigated might be seen and might point people towards you. Lord, help us to pray boldly. Help us to not be timid. Help us to live life, live lives that are lived obediently, not with compromise. And help us to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. Amen.